as well talk about vampires today it's a good day any day to talk about vampires today is national vampire day so it's better than most days to talk about vampires is it um yes 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 yeah we're not doubting that we're gonna roll with it uh yes it's national vampire day okay on the list of vampires count chocula okay that's one uh the count from sesame street that's two um yorga oh okay yeah vampire uh blackula blackula dracula dracula does bonicula count yes okay bonicula we got six vampires so far uh i think that's most of them uh old dracula old dracula yeah he's his own character uh, uh dracula dead and loving it yeah that's just old dracula it's just leslie nielsen dracula um Dracula, the dirty old man. Uh, yes. Oh, oh these are all Dracula, film. though. Uh, Nosferatu's oh, yeah. kind of also a Dracula. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Lestat. Oh, yeah. There's another one. Uh, Robert Pattinson is a vampire. Yes, he is. His name's Edward. No, his name's Robert Pattinson. Oh, he's a vampire. Yes. I knew that. He also plays a vampire, but he himself is a vampire. It's scary to think about vampires living among us. Yeah, well, you know. The world wasn't a scary enough place already. Oh, the world is a vampire. Oh, yeah, that's what the prophet Billy Corgan told us. Yeah. Jeez, so scary. You know what's less scary? What's that? But kind of annoying? Social media. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Social media is definitely a vampire yeah, it a preys, parasite of some sort. It preys on our bots and hashtags. Hashtags lives for them. <laughs> um, yeah, hashtags. Uh, so usually when I make a post out, hashtag uh, a couple different people who are in the film that are kind of notable just to like gen up views. Right. Basically, you know, basic marketing. Yeah, marketing one hundred and one. Marketing one hundred and one. You got to put that in the hashtag. Yeah, that's that's the entire class. That's it. <laughs> That's how you get people to buy bootleg shirts from China. So sad. Uh, Are we going to start making bootleg shirts in China and selling them via hashtags? Yeah. Okay, cool. The, this whole thing was about my business proposal that I had. And you just kind of laid it out for me. So um, I guess that's it. Oh, okay. Oh, wait, no. Uh, so sometimes I'll hashtag like the stars of the films, which I figure for the most part they're dead. Right, for the most part. They're not all dead. No. They're not all dead and loving it. <laughs> not like Dracula. <laughs> not like Dracula at all. Um, so a couple of weeks ago we did Trashy Lady. Yes. Uh, starring both the Lens, Ginger, and Amber. Oh, yes. 
Amberlynn is active on Instagram and DM'd me requesting that I unhashtag her. <laughs> uh, and I kind of waffled on going back and forth a bit. I was like, I guess I should respect her request, especially since we're like, I don't know, talking about her. Right. Uh, maybe she doesn't want people to know that we're talking about her. <laughs> I could see that. Um, and I was like, Postal, like you're a public figure, so you can be hashtagged. Right. That's in the First Amendment, I'm pretty sure. Yeah, that's uh, the right to free speech and yeah. organi- and uh, practicing religion. Yeah, and, protest uh, and hashtags. Hashtags, right. Yeah, um, but eventually I caved and just did it anyway. Right. Uh, but uh, <laughs> I invited her to be on the show and she just left me on red, <laughs> which is rude. That is uh, rude. She could at least say no. She was in things, but she's too good for us. Yeah, that's some bullshit. That is some bullshit. Classic film things. So uh, we have had one interaction with the uh, porn film industry. And it's gone negatively. <laughs> right. <laughs> Basically like the non-legal version of a cease and desist. Right. It's a polite request. <laughs> well uh i kind of wanted to ask her why she wanted me to but i feel like i never would have got a response anyway right so i just but i I do wonder what her motivation is is if it's because she's just posting like pictures of herself and she has her own like radio show and i wonder if she's like dming everyone and being like please unhashtag me if you've hashtagged me i don't know does, does she look at the post or does she just see that someone's hashtagged her? Because there's people whose name is just Amber Lynn. That's just a... That's, that's a, a trashy, human name. It's a trashy white human name. <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, a perfect name for a trashy lady. Yeah, a perfect name for... Indeed. I think I put her on the <laughs> list, actually, when I was making my list of trashy ladies. You did. And this is how I'm treated, which is just what you would expect from a trashy lady. And <laughs> yeah. I love it. <laughs> Um, so that's so you've my, come full circle. Yeah, that's my um, encounter with celebrity. Uh, so yeah, we've had two celebrity encounters. We've had that, and then we also had uh, John Kassir, the Crypt Keeper, who uh, was either given or given the wrong name or forgot our name. Uh, but either way, does not know the name of this podcast, yeah. which is okay. It's fine. Yeah. I didn't expect he was going to turn around and start listening to it or anything. No. But, still like, uh, I still like to think he tried and was just baffled when he couldn't find it. <laughs> I don't see this raincoat review anywhere. <laughs> that's that's what he sounds like. Yeah. But uh, back to our the main scary thing we're talking about today, which is vampires. Oh, yeah. Or lesbians. Which one's scarier to you? Uh, vampires. Yeah. Uh, lesbians are great. Yeah. I love them. Ellen? No, I don't like... I actually don't like Ellen. I find yeah, her, I've heard she's a real meanie. I've heard she's mean, and I find her dancing every day instead of just on a Friday to be very... Um, Unsettling? No, it's kind of like... It's not quite tacky. It's, uh, it's gratuitous. I find it gratuitous. There's too much dancing. Um, if, you, this, if you dance every day, it doesn't really mean anything when you dance anymore. Yeah. You've you've devalued the the dance. Exactly. And I felt this way since about two thousand three. 
or whenever <laughs> her show started airing and I saw her dance every day. Right. And you might say, why were you just watching Ellen every day if you hated it? And I'll say, it was on at the community college, like, student center. And that's where I would just sit between classes. Oh. Yeah. It's fair Watch, enough. Watching some Ellen. <laughs> Uh, okay, well, uh, so by this very cryptic and winding introduction. <laughs> oh, yeah, it's still it's still the podcast. It's, it's still, still the, the Raincoat Review. Uh, yeah, welcome to the Raincoat Review uh, or report. It's, it's Boss and Jeremy. Uh, hello. Hello again. Um, uh, welcome back for the third uh, cryptic episode of Franco February. Right, and uh, today we are talking about Vampiros Lesbos, uh, which is a 1970 production Mm -hmm. starring Soledad Miranda, and uh, it was uh, quite a film. Um, (laughs) uh, This is... The earliest Jess Franco film that we've talked about, although this is a solid 10 plus years into his career at this point, but this is still when he's kind of finding his footing in the uh, erotic type of cinema that he became known for. Um, But this is definitely one of the films where he's really on track with it. To give a little bit more background about this film, Um, I want to, again, as I have on previous episodes, kind of contextualize this film within the framework of Jess's career. So at this point, Jess had just gotten done with a long string of films that he had done with English producer Harry Allen Towers. Uh, This included uh, several films with Christopher Lee that he did. Uh, The Fu Manchu films that Jess Franco did. He did an adaptation of Bram Stoker's Dracula uh, called Count Dracula. He did Venus and Furs for Harry Allen Towers. Uh, That's a good movie. It's not... I don't think it's erotic enough for us to talk about it, but I do like that one. Uh, It's pretty good. Um, It also uh, did uh, Justine. The Marquis de Sade adaptation that he did mm-hmm. for Harry Allen Towers. That partnership kind of dissolved uh, in late 69 or so. So Jess started doing a few films independently. And it was shortly after this time that he started to work with a new producer. I feel like if you've heard of a Jess Franco film, this might be the one you've heard of, to be honest. Yeah, I could see that. I think, I feel like it's the kind of thing that gets like, if you take like a course on like cult film or something, it's probably the one you're going to end up watching. I feel like that's how my brother saw it. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, because he was, yeah, he had mentioned it at one point and I was like, huh. I was like, you know, like I don't know if they're teaching at that college, but uh, I can at least agree with that. Teaching you these liberal ideas. Right. Bunch of fucking nerds. Uh, But this was, uh, you know, one of his productions after that Harry Allen Towers period. Um, It was also one of the first few productions that he did that uh, featured Soledad Miranda as the lead in the film. 
Um, Soledad Miranda was, in a lot of ways, Jess's muse for a short period of time. But when you actually kind of break down the amount of time that they were working together, it's somewhat brief. Mm -hmm. uh, But it produced quite a few films. Mm -hmm. Soledad Miranda was uh, a dancer at it from a young age and got into acting around the age of 16. In her first year or so of acting, she actually appeared in one of Jess Franco's early films, a musical, uh, which the name escapes me right now. Uh, but, um, you know, it was one of Jess's earliest productions and one of uh, Soledad Miranda's earliest productions. She didn't have a starring role, but she appeared in it. Uh, she went on to do all kinds of films, uh, a lot of comedies, but she did tons of different genres. She did like some sword and sandal stuff, some Western mm-hmm. stuff, uh, dramas, and everything else. Um, but... Um, we would later see, you know, on Jess's side, that he was continuing to break away from kind of the norm when making his own films. He had a pretty good relationship with Harry Allen Towers in the UK, but, you know, the expectations of a film, erotic or otherwise, in the UK were certainly a lot more conservative than where Jess's mind was going, so... He had already become too spicy, shall we say, for Spain, um, but also so for the UK. So he kind of had to reach out and do his own thing. For this, he was kind of branching out and doing a few things. And even during that uh, Harry Allen Towers period, he was definitely pushing the boundaries as he was known to do for most of his career. In this case... Uh, you know, the later period of his films with Towers got more and more erotic with stuff like Eugenie. Yes. Um, and, or actually, I think Eugenie is actually after the Towers period, but yeah. Justine, at least, was Towers. Yes. Venus and Furs, while perhaps not super sexual in the way of a lot of his later films, it's still mostly it's about eroticism. Some, yeah. It's definitely an erotic film, mostly. Yes. Um, uh, you know, he's kind of pushing the boundaries there, but it's around this time that he's doing these films that uh, Soledad Miranda comes back on his radar. Jess is shooting a few different films around this time that she ended up appearing in. Uh, she had a small role in Jess's Count Dracula film. Mm-hmm. Uh, she plays Lucy, actually, in that. Okay. Um, she appears in one of his uh, independent productions, Nightmares Come at Night. Um, She and her uh, lover in this film, Omar's the character's name. I can't remember the actor's name. Um, It's Omar. (laughs) Omar. Yeah, he plays Um, himself. uh, She appears with him in these uh, sequences for Nightmares Come at Night, but she and Omar appear in this room together and never interact with any of the other characters in the film because their scenes were shot later than everybody else's. (laughs) So that's fun. Yeah. But they also uh, appear together in several other films during this time frame. And uh, one of the independent productions that he made directly after ending the partnership with Harry Allen Towers was this film, Vampiros Lesbos. 
Uh, it was a co-production between Spain and Germany yes. with a uh, German producer that he was uh, making several films with at the time. Mm-hmm. This was shot at the same time as another Soledad Miranda film, She Killed in Ecstasy. Okay. Is that um, a Franco film? Too? That is also okay. a Franco That's film with thinking. mostly the same cast. Yeah. Okay. That makes sense. So Franco talked a bit about this um, in the special features on the Vampiros Lesbos Blu-ray. Uh-huh. Um, there's three interesting uh, segments on there. Uh, actually, four. So there is a, a piece by Stephen Thrower, who uh, wrote the books that I continue to quote during these episodes. Right. In particular, his first book, Murderous Passions, covers this film. Um, but he does a 20-minute a little featurette on the Blu-ray talking a bit about this film. Cool. But at the same time, uh, there's also an interview with Jess Franco himself where he talks about this film. There's also an interview with a woman who's kind of an expert on Soledad Miranda's career and talked a little bit about her background and everything. It's a very specialized field. Yeah. <laughs> But uh, there's also, uh, just kind of as an aside, there's a separate, like, two or three minute uh, segment of the Jess Franco interview that is its own feature there. And in it, somebody showed him, like, a little Yoda figurine or something, and Jess Franco was like, oh, I've got a story about this. (laughs) And he talked about how he knew this guy, and I can't remember what his name was, but he was a special effects guy who knew Jess and they had perhaps worked together sometime in the past, but the special effects guy became very well known and ended up working for people like George Lucas and stuff like that. And, uh, Jess said that at one point, uh, he met him at like a party or some sort of Mm. gathering and ran into him. And, um, the guy asked Jess if he was mad at him and Jess asked, "Why, why would I be mad at you? What's, what's wrong? And, he explained that uh, he was the one who had uh, created the uh, Yoda character for Star Wars, sure. um, or at least had made the actual model or puppet they used right. for it. In, in the design process somewhere of Yoda. Right, and yeah. uh, apparently he said that he had uh, based Yoda's appearance on Jess Franco, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, Jess seemed to... Uh, be uh honored by that That's not great. upset in any way i can kind of see it uh um, yeah also jess is known to kind of make shit up sometimes yeah but uh that's an interesting story that i that's choose to story. believe yeah i'm gonna believe it that's a weird like if you're a pathological liar you're gonna lie about everything or whatever right. but it seems like if he's at all reliable it doesn't sound like the kind of thing you would really need to make up right that's a really weird thing that's like the line he was using to like impress like 20 year old girls in like the 90s he's like i'm yoda (laughs) i'm a yoda he's not italian (laughs) once again i can't do a spanish accent i'm not gonna try yeah we should just stop right there on that yeah let's not i don't know why even I shouldn't bring up nationalities or anything like that <laughs> ever. But uh, so I, I kind of got. Yeah, you went off on a little. I went on a, off on a little tangent just because I found Star that Wars. little amusing. It's Franco Star Wars story. Uh, but in uh, Jess Franco's larger interview, where he talks a bit more about Vampiros Lesbos mm-hmm. and Soledad Miranda, 
he talked a little bit about his production of Count Dracula that he did and how he was a bit uh, disappointed in it. But at the same time, he really connected with the story. He talked about how, you know, he had an affinity for horror cinema, but uh, he really liked Dracula the most of all uh, and vampires as a as a kind of a monster. Yeah. And he said that the reason that he liked them is because they're very smart and cunning and, um, you know, stuff like a zombie. He didn't. He talked about how he didn't think zombies were scary because they're slow and... Interesting, given one of the choices he makes in this film. Well, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, you know, he talks he talks a bit about his affinity for that. So um, he thought that, you know, Soledad Miranda in particular was a great fit for this uh, sort oh. of role. And she definitely was. Yeah, she's definitely got that uh, vampire girl look down. Yeah. So apparently... Uh, you know, this is, again, maybe like the third or fourth film that he did with Miranda in this run, not even counting that first one several right. years earlier. But right. he would go on to make a few more films with her and uh, had partially completed another film called Juliet that needed some more shooting. He had done probably half the film. I think it was like 40 minutes completed on mm -hmm. it. But apparently... He and the German producer he was working with were very impressed with her work. And apparently he had negotiated with Soledad Miranda and the German producer to uh, sign her up for a contract with that producer to make several films. And the idea was to continue to make kind of bigger films with her in it. And they thought they could really make a star out of her. Um, but... She unfortunately died in a car accident, apparently the day before she was uh, supposed to sign this contract. Damn. She died at the age of 28. In Portugal. Uh, okay, in Portugal, I yes. I looked her up. Oh, okay. Uh, in one of the interviews, they talked about how, you know, it was a dangerous road they were on that the locals knew had a bunch of dangerous curves on it, and apparently they didn't see some truck backing out or something, and they just smashed into it and while her uh husband survived the crash uh she was killed damn yeah so um and that had a pretty significant impact on jess while by all accounts it didn't seem like they had any sort of romantic relationship he, she still seemed to be his muse at the time and uh you know someone that he had intentions of working with for a long time there and uh, she apparently died before any of the movies that she made with Jess, uh, you know, other than that one 10 years earlier. Right. It came, uh, came had out. come out in the cinema. So she never got to see any of the movies she completed with him. They did say that she had seen a few of the, like, unfinished edits of some of the stuff. And she seemed to be very proud of the work that she was doing at the time. She had been cast in a lot of roles uh even in her mid-20s as like a dumb teenager and stuff like that yeah and really hadn't been given a whole lot of uh acting range and stuff but in jess's film she got to play these darker roles more sure. sexual roles yeah. and 
you know, it was something that uh, was taking her career in a different direction. She had actually quit acting a few years earlier mm-hmm. uh, when she had a child, but yes. she got an offer to be in some other movie, and she kind of gave it one more shot. And uh, Jess's work with her wasn't too long after she had gotten back into movies, so it's all uh, fairly sad. And their tenure of making movies, you know, there, you know, again, the one like ten years earlier, but right. uh, the this patch of movies went from like mid sixty nine to mid seventy. So in a period of like a year, they made like nine or ten movies together. Yeah. So it's, it's, a, lot of, it's a lot of movie making. Yeah, it is. So she appears to be a fairly prolific person in his films. If you look at his films of the time frame, right? But in reality, it was really a period of like a year or so. Yeah, it's interesting. It is. Yeah, that's like at least like thirteen hours of like film time, like over the course of like a year. Right. That's a lot. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that's pretty good. I also, um, I read that she also had. Uh, she did some uh, Spanish language songs in the '60s. Uh, yes, some yes. Pop stuff. So I'm gonna listen to some of that later and see how I like that. I bet it's enchanting. Yeah, and the special features on the uh, Blu-ray, uh, the the woman who was talking about Soledad Miranda mentioned um, that they had done, or maybe it was Stephen Thrower when he was talking. One of them mentioned that she had done a couple of EPs, and it was like a thing that a lot of the young actresses of the time right. we're doing were putting out these eps of songs so she put out like eight songs worth of material yeah. uh, including a cover of uh i think it was chim chimery chim chim tree or chim chim tree yeah, yeah uh, from uh, mary poppins yes that's that's what i bet that will be a lot of fun yeah i can't wait <laughs> But yeah, this this film also has a lot of parallels with a lot of Jess's other work. Um, yes. A couple weeks back, I kind of mentioned that that whole mindset that uh, in order to see one of Jess's films, you have to see them all and all of that, which, mm-hmm. you know, again, I don't fully agree with that idea, but his films really do work kind of as a patchwork of his whole career. Yeah. And there's so many threads that tie them together. And this is a film that carries a lot of, uh, DNA that shows up in a lot of his other right. films. Yeah. Cause, um, like I almost immediately like started comparing it to like shining sex just because I'd seen that one first. Right. And there's like the opening sequences. It's not like shot for shot, but like it's the same basic thing. Right. There's, like, a dance of, like, this, like, beautiful woman and, like, a mysterious nightclub kind of deal. Right. Which is how he does a bunch of stuff, but uh, it's pretty neat. The roles are kind of reversed in this one, though. Like, it's the dancer doing the seducing instead of the weird, distant lesbian alien. Right. (laughs) Um, But, uh, yeah, it's it's vampires. 
it's always been vampires. It's always been vampires. All right, so I'll talk a little bit more about those uh, thematic connections here in a bit, but we'll go ahead and take a break, and then we'll be back to talk more about Vampiros Lesbos. Everybody's just going to hear a buzz in the background. Like one of the bees from Donkey Kong Country is sitting in the room with us. Oh, yeah. He's our guest host. <laughs> <laughs> it's a big bee. <laughs> uh, all right. So we're back on the Raincoat Report to talk about Vampiros Lesbos. So uh, the film opens with a bunch of shots of boats out at sea. And we hear this kind of garbled radio chatter and some trippy pink floydish music um yeah. the music in this film by the way is fantastic in my opinion yeah it's great um it's definitely a classic film soundtrack uh yes jess franco talked about how it was essentially these uh two musicians who lived in berlin who essentially well who had said that they would do it for free um, just for a certain share of the profits or something like yeah. that. Um, and Jess was like, sure. So they did the music and that was that. But uh, the results are great. Yeah. Um, uh, it's very Pink Floyd-y. Uh, it does have a lot of that to it. Uh, which is, I think, is interesting because it, it. I think that that means that they were really uh, in touch with uh, modern music at the time because they were exactly where pink floyd was in 1970 more or less so yeah. i thought that was interesting but uh it goes very well to uh carry the psychedelic nature of this film yeah um apparently their names were uh Sigi schwab and monford hubler there Two we go very german names um they <laughs> called their little act the vampire sounds incorporated oh well that's fitting yeah it's on um it's on spotify if you got that oh excellent yeah. um it there was a bonus disc with uh, she killed in ecstasy that had music from this mm-hmm. she killed in ecstasy and one of the other soledad miranda films That's pretty cool uh, with jess franco i can't remember which we get this kind of uh trippy sequence with some shots of soledad miranda as a uh, nadine uh countess nadine cadbury uh yes cadbury <laughs> Countess Nadine Carady. Oh, Carradine? Carady. C-A-R-O-D-Y. Like Kill Bill? Kill Bill? Yeah, David Carradine. No. Oh. (laughs) (laughs) So we see Countess Nadine reaching towards the camera and uh, all this trippy music. Then we see some exterior shots of what I found out to be uh, Turkish architecture. Yes, it's all uh, in Istanbul. Yes. Yes. Uh, 
Very, um, uh, very lovely looking country. Uh, yes, uh, uh, interesting architecture, very rounded. I think it's the Muslim influence, I'm going to say. Yeah. 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 Um, apparently not. I don't know. I'd like to go, but I don't know how I would be received. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know how you would be received in most places. Yeah. I'm just staying in America where I know everyone else is worse than me. <laughs> um, after the exterior shots, we get some inside shots and we see uh, a nightclub scene, which uh, you kind of brought up earlier is something that was uh, kind of the same sort of opening that we had in Shining Sex. Yeah. And definitely a recurring theme in Jess Franco's films. Here we see a performance by countess nadine and another woman who is standing there completely naked that's, kind of as a, a, a mannequin that's a real doll uh, as a yes she's that, a real doll that's her real doll <laughs> she's misusing it that's not this isn't what it's for right it's not for your art school dropout one woman show <laughs> it's for fucking so nadine is staring into a mirror she's wearing this uh kind of black lingerie with like a, a black sheer covering over it and a red scarf she kind of dances slowly around a bit in front of the mirror and writhes on the floor uh before approaching this uh living mannequin uh, and starting to undress a bit and then she more or less kind of puts her clothes on the mannequin mm-hmm uh, and crawls under her and caresses her a bit. Um, then she comes face to face with it and it starts to move a little bit. And so um, we get cutaways to the audience who are watching intently. And that includes uh, Omar and Linda. Yes. Who are, you know, a part of the audience. But Linda in particular is very transfixed on this. Yes. Nadine continues to dance around with the mannequin and kind of drags her down to the floor with her. Mm-hmm. And it's at that point that the the song stops and I guess the performance there stops. Um, we see people in the crowd talking and Linda and Omar in particular. Omar asks why she's uh, so excited having watched that and she says that it's nothing. Then we get a cutaway to uh, what ends up being a dream sequence where Linda's laying in bed and we see the Countess Nadine on screen uh, and just a voiceover of her calling out to Linda. As a kite. Uh, we see a kite. That yells, Linda. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of shots of a kite recurring in this film I with Linda over it. evil kite. There's several shots that we see multiple times throughout. We then see Linda get out of bed and get out on a boat. And she's, I guess, heading towards Nadine. And then we see Nadine kind of reaching out toward the camera as music keeps playing. And then we see Linda in her, uh, I guess, therapist's office describing this dream that she keeps having. Yes. She says that she's reached orgasm during the dream. That's one of the things she mentions. Yeah. <laughs> uh, she explains to the doctor, uh, and this is Dr. Steiner, uh, mm-hmm. who's played by Paul Mueller, who's in several of Jess's films. Yeah. 
But she also explains to the doctor that she went to the club the other night with Omar and saw the woman from her dream. So I believe that the opening sequence is supposed to be real life, but yes. her waking up and getting on a boat and going to see Nadine That's was a, a fantasy or a to, dream. Yeah. yeah, you got it. We then see Linda meet up with Omar, her boyfriend, on a balcony overlooking a pool. They talk to each other a bit. Uh, Linda says that she's scared and says that they should spend a few days together. Um, then we cut from that to Linda going to her work. Um, she's some sort of legal counsel that would help with an inheritance, apparently. Yeah, she's works for some probate office. Who knows? So some lawyer. We see her talking to somebody else, and she has to go to Angola in Turkey to uh, see Countess Carity about an inheritance. We then see Linda on a boat pulling up to the shore, and we got some shots of a kite with Linda voiced over again. Linda meets up with someone who tells her that she's late and the boat left, so she was supposed to catch a boat from this place, uh, this hotel, uh, to go see the Countess. But apparently the Countess has reserved Linda a room, so the guy in charge introduces her to Mamet, who is uh, played by Jess Franco. Yes, he is. Uh, who is a, a delightful character. Yeah, he's a little hunchback. Uh, so... He shows her to the room. Uh, he's acting weird the whole time. He tells her that he picked out the best room in the place for her and that he cleaned it her himself. She sits down in bed and he leaves. And uh, we see her sleeping. Uh, she's wearing kind of a nightgown, but there's a, a peak of her panties that is, she's sleeping. Ooh. I noted. Right. We see her kind of panting in her sleep and then she jerks awake. She gets up and goes downstairs in her nightgown and where she is startled by Mamet, who's roaming the hallways and uh, makes her jump. He's doing Mamet stuff. He stops her to say that she shouldn't go to the island because death lives there. And he tells her to meet him in the wine cellar later. So we and then... And the guy yells, get back to work. Uh, yeah, his boss yells at him to get back to work. He's being creepy and not doing his job right just like me yeah <laughs> so we cut from there immediately to linda walking around the wine cellar and then she opens a door to see Bamet leaning over a woman who's bleeding from her head yes uh and then Bamet turns around and linda runs off and Bamet chases after her and then we cut immediately from that straight to Linda on a boat. <laughs> she didn't heed his advice at all, but he was also apparently murdering women. Yeah, so I don't know if I would take his advice necessarily. Yeah. I don't know if that was supposed to be like real or not either, though. Uh, later on, I feel like it's kind of it, 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 yeah. solidified. Yeah, at the well, time, it's baffling. Right. Well, I mean, it's Jess Franco. Yeah. Uh, at his most hypnotic yes so yeah we're done with mamet for now uh and we see more shots of the kite with linda voiced over it and then we see linda walking the beach and then we get these trippy shots of scorpions which we will as with the kite see a lot of throughout the film 
We get a lot of very organy, prog, Pink Floydy music again. She ends up walking into a house that has an open sliding door and starts to yell out if anyone's there. She approaches a glass door on the other side and pulls the curtains open to see a drop of blood rolling down the glass. This shot of a drop of blood rolling down the glass is also repeated throughout the film a lot. One of the fun, trippy visuals of the film. Linda then approaches the Countess on the beach. Linda compliments uh, the Countess's view there, and uh, Nadine, again the Countess, says that it's her favorite place. She then immediately invites Linda to go swim with her, and Linda takes her up on it. So they go running, giggling towards the beach, and as they're running, Linda mentions that she doesn't have a swimsuit. Uh, Nadine tells her not to be shy, so Linda just undresses and gets naked and runs into the water with uh, Nadine. Yeah, Europeans are a lot more liberated Uh, than us, so this is just normal. Uh, So they splash around a bit, and then we see Linda naked on the beach, and Nadine's laying down uh, next to her in her swimsuit. But then she undresses and lays naked in the sand next to her. Yes. She says she likes to lay naked in the sand, especially next to someone. We then see Nadine at a table. Oh, uh, I don't like the sand. Yeah, I don't know. I don't, uh, I don't want to get sand in my crack. I don't like the feel of it. Um, she had probably a ton of sand in her crack. Yeah, she was. She like laid down on her back in the sand, and then she rolled over and laid on her belly, and then you could tell her back was just caked in sand at yes. that point. Yeah, her cheeks are just covered in the stuff. Yeah, uh, I don't like it. <laughs> so we see Nadine at a table, and Linda walks into the room, and Nadine compliments her outfit. So Linda starts to talk to Nadine about her inheritance and says that it was very complicated to figure out and asks if Nadine can uh, inform her more about her relationship with Count Dracula, hoping that more information would help with her untangling things. We then find out a little bit about Nadine's history. She says that Count Dracula was very generous to her, but she was the one for him that made life worth living. Linda tells her that she was very lucky and not everybody was so generous. But Nadine says that she just hopes that she could pass it on to someone else. It's at this point that Nadine pours uh, some wine for Linda. Um, and Nadine talks about how much she likes this wine. Uh, Linda takes a drink and then comments that she has a headache. And Nadine says that she'll take her to her room. But... Linda instead just passes out there. Yeah. And we see Nadine get up and start to rub her neck. And then she calls in Morpho, <laughs> the second hunchback of the film. Yeah. I mean, he's not actually a hunchback, no, but he's... He's the he's a, a, a second manservant of right. the film. Yeah. <laughs> so he carries Linda and lays her into the bed. Uh, again, more weird pseudo-Pink Floyd going on. Mm-hmm. Uh, we get some more outside establishing shots. One of a dog in in the water uh, outside. A shot of some houses and more scorpion close-ups. I like them. Uh, yes, I love it. It's very Franconian. Yes, it's very artistic. Uh, we see Linda in this bed, and uh, 
the countess jerks open the curtain in the room and linda looks up to see that she's got a dab of blood below her lips linda gets up and walks forward a few steps and nadine approaches her and starts to caress her chest and kiss her they kind of lower to the ground together and the countess slides open linda's top and starts to rub her lips on linda's skin Uh, more cutaways to the scorpion and Nadine then stands above Linda and starts to caress her own thighs and then they she gets down and they kiss more on the ground then we see Nadine biting Linda some shots of blood dripping down the window like we saw earlier yes Um, and when Nadine leans up we see a big string of spit and blood dripping out of her mouth it's really goopy it's very goopy and thick yeah it doesn't look like blood uh, yeah, it's it's that uh, it's that like red paint looking blood that they used in like Dawn of the Dead and a lot of Italian yeah. films and Euro horror films of the time. Yeah, yeah. Um, too goopy. Too goopy. <laughs> uh, I think it's still a cool visual though. Yeah. Um, so we cut away and then we see Linda naked on the floor, but she's alone now. She jerks up and stands and calls out to Nadine, but gets no answer. She's walking through Nadine's house and finally walks outside. And we get a cut to uh, Linda looking into the pool and she sees Nadine laying in the pool, uh, almost lifeless. She's completely naked with her red scarf that she's wearing being the only thing on her. And it's flowing behind her, almost like a trail of blood behind her. Oh, yeah. Uh, She's still got blood on her lips. Uh, Linda sees this and screams out in shock and passes out. Again. Again. Uh, She does a lot of passing out in this film. Yeah. It's at this point that we see Agra, who uh, jerks awake and starts acting all nutso. And she is at the old 70s nut house. Yes. There's an orderly there, or uh, I think he's described as the doctor's assistant. Uh, he tells her to calm down, and he slaps her. Yeah. That's as, you, a, as you do to an unruly woman. That's a medical technique. Uh, yes. They teach you in school. Uh, so she starts to tell the doctor's assistant here that she is close. And she asks the assistant to help make sure that she doesn't leave again. So the assistant says, sure, sure, and walks off, and he goes and meets with Dr. Seward, uh, the person in charge of this uh, particular institution. Yes, Um, another Dracula character. Yes, uh, this is another one of Jess Franco's Dracula rips. Uh, There's a lot of Dracula here. Yeah. I was going to talk a little bit more about later but it's it's definitely here on the on the surface with uh yeah and i think with dr you, seward and also of course uh in shining sex we had a dr seward who was jess oh, franco's that's character true. yeah that's right he was the doctor and that he was in a wheelchair and his man had to carry him everywhere right <laughs> so he could rip the clothes off of women yes <laughs> So the assistant meets with Dr. Seward and tells him that uh, Agra has had another fit. The doctor says it's always the same symptoms, and he tells the uh, assistant that she needs another injection. But uh, before the injection, Seward approaches Agra in her room and asks if she saw her again. 
So again, they're talking about an unnamed woman here. Yes. But Dr. Seward's trying to get more information. He asks for her name and who she is, but all that Agra can say is that her friend is the queen of the night. Uh, he's like, um, I see. <laughs> queen of the night. Is that, um, who was the queen of the night? It's a pop star. Uh, I don't know. That's going to drive me crazy. Okay. Well, you can get back to us on that. I'll find out who it is. Someone out there knows. So we then cut to Linda again. She's waking up in a bed. She asks where she is. Whitney and... Houston is the queen of the night. Oh, okay. Yeah. I thought it was her, but I wanted to make sure. Well, I appreciate you making sure. Uh, yeah, I like whenever you're like doing like the serious duty and I'm over here trying to figure out some bit of celebrity <laughs> trivia that is mixed up in my jelly brain. <laughs> Linda has woken up at Dr. Seward's clinic for some reason. And Dr. Seward's assistant is the one who uh, sees her at first. She asks where she is and... He leaves, and Dr. Seward walks in. He asks her how she is, and she asks where she is. He introduces himself as Dr. Seward, and he asks her name, but she doesn't remember. He asks what happened, and she doesn't remember anything. Um, We cut from this to Linda's boyfriend, Omar, showing up at Dr. Seward's place. Uh, He apparently has heard that they found a woman, and he thinks that maybe it's his girlfriend that disappeared. There's like an ad in the paper... (laughs) <laughs> it's like lost woman found. Uh, it's like one of those things where you find a wallet and you have to go like get them to like, okay, well, uh, how much money is in the wallet? What's the name on the license? Right. But with a human. Exactly. <laughs> he says that he thinks it might be his girlfriend. And Dr. Seward asks if they had been in an argument. And he says no. So <laughs> Dr. Seward with that cleared up, decides that yeah. he can go see uh, Linda. Yeah, this guy seems like he's on the up and up. He walks into Linda's room, and then she immediately sits up. And then we go straight from that to them on a boat together. And apparently Linda has remembered everything except what happened on that island. Okay. Uh, which is interesting. Yeah. Omar tells her not to worry about it and that they'll go on holiday together. So we then see Nadine laying down. Uh, She's talking about how Count Dracula saved her from being raped. Uh, The Count had told her that he would take all her suffering away. Uh, She talks about how he visited her night after night, taking her blood. And when she started getting weak, he shared the secret of the vampires. Yes. Uh, She says he initiated her. But he was also addicted to her. She says she has had many men uh, who she finds disgusting, but also women who are infatuated with her. But now she is under Linda's spell. What was it like to fall under the spell of a woman named Linda? (laughs) All the Lindas I know have been older white women. I don't think I've met like a young, attractive Linda. Well, but, there there had to have been those at one time because there and, are old Lindas now. Yeah, and I guess some of the Lindas now were the Lindas then. Yeah. Wow. If this Linda uh, character survived unto today, she would be an old lady now. She sure would be. <laughs> the hot nights of old Linda. 
Yes, this is 50 years ago, this film. Yeah. Jeez, that's so long. Yeah. What an old movie. We yeah. should be talking about more recent stuff. Yeah, like The Expendables. Mm, they made three of those. Yeah, they did. And I haven't seen any of them. Yeah, me neither. Well, I get it, though. Yeah, I guess we'll just keep talking about the old movies that we have seen instead of the new ones that we haven't. <laughs> Fair enough. So we then see Linda and Omar in a bed together, and uh, it's a shot from outside their window. And then we cut and see Nadine and Morpho watching Omar and Linda from another window, it seems. You like Morpho's giant sunglasses? Uh, yes. They're great. They're excellent. I want to get some. Uh, want to go to the mall and get some of the sunglass hut. That sounds like a good idea. All right, you want to drive to the mall after this? Uh, let's do it now. Our listeners can wait. Okay. All right. <laughs> so as they look on out the window, I'm reminded of nightmares come at night, where uh, Soledad Miranda and the uh, actor who played Omar in this are in a room looking out from a window onto the other characters in the film who they actually don't have any interaction in the film with. But uh, it's a very similar imagery. And it's not surprising it's still on Jess's brain because this is just a few months after Nightmares Come at Night uh, that those scenes were shot. Right. So we hear more Linda calling out as Linda's in bed and she sits up and gets out of bed and then... We see Linda walking down a hallway and then up a big staircase, a big staircase outside and a big spiral staircase inside. Yes. And we see Nadine, who's uh, sitting down on this black and red. It's like it's almost like an Ottoman footstool, Mm -hmm. but it's like a bed size thing. Yeah. It's an interesting design piece of furniture. Yes, it is. Linda walks into the room, and Nadine gets up to greet her. Nadine starts communicating with her, I think, telepathically, because her mouth's not moving, and it's kind of like an echoey voiceover. Uh, but it could also just be that they decided to add dialogue later on. But whatever. <laughs> she says that she was waiting for her, and she grabs this huge goblet of what looks like perhaps wine, oh. but uh, perhaps it's blood. <laughs> Uh, in fact, they drink it, and then Nadine says, it's This blood. is blood. Did you realize it was blood? And she sits down the goblet and approaches uh, Linda. Mm-hmm. Nadine says that she's one of them now. She talks about how the Queen of the Night's going to carry her with her black wings or something like that. Yeah. Which is a really cool imagery. It's very scary. Uh,. Did you ever eat at Bonnie and Clyde's Pizza? You could order a goblet of soda. It was huge, and this is, reminded me of it. It was basically <laughs> yeah. like, a, it was like a cake pan, kind of like a glass one. It was just like massive, but it would be full of Coca-Cola. Yeah, yeah. And the bathroom smelled like sewage. Yeah, you don't want to sit near the bathroom at Bonnie and Clyde's. No. It's just all that meat's just getting shit right back out. <laughs> So uh, Nadine and Linda lay down together and start kissing. And uh, then we cut to Agra, who's in bed writhing around. Uh, She's holding on to some weird plastic clown doll thing. Mm -hmm. Uh, She's writhing. We get cuts back and forth between Nadine and Linda together and Agra screaming out and jumping out of bed and crying out Nadine. 
Nadine and Linda are making out, and eventually Nadine bites her. Um, that's when Agra screams. Then we cut from all of that to Omar talking to Dr. Seward. Dr. Seward says that Omar lost a lot of blood, but it's not serious. And Linda talks about how pale Omar was. So we don't see this, but apparently at some point it seems that either Nadine or Linda vamped Omar. But uh, there's no real explicit explanation as to what happened here. But Dr. Seward explains that he spent a lot of time studying the occult and vampires and uh, says that her friend isn't in danger, but Linda may be. But Linda says that she thought she might be in danger, and she explains that she keeps finding herself in weird places and doing weird things. Dr. Seward says she needs to focus on wanting to live and go on, and that if a vampire is killed, they'll disappear. He explains that there are two ways that you can kill a vampire. All right. Uh, and this may uh, differ a bit with vampire tradition, although the vampires in this film do differ a lot with tradition. Yes. He explains that you must split a vampire's head with an axe or puncture their skull with a spike. Yeah. He's got vampires and zombies all mixed up. Right. <laughs> I don't think he's a very good doctor, I'll be honest. So uh, we see Agra writhing around again, and she starts babbling about how she was inside her, but now she's gone. No one can save her because she left her. Seward tries to calm her, but she says it's too late. He can't help her. Suddenly, she stops and then says to Dr. Seward that she told her that she's coming back. And so Seward leaves. So... We cut from there to Omar. He's standing up, and Seward tells him that he can leave when he's ready and he's no longer in danger. Omar says that he's worried about Linda. She seems very distant and incoherent. He says that she gets weaker by the day. Seward says it's just on her to stay strong. And for some reason, Omar's just satisfied with this and just leaves, so... Uh, as he's leaving, Agra catches him and says that they locked her up thinking she's crazy... But, in fact, she's in touch with supernatural powers. She says something about her house uh, in the mountains and tells Omar that she is going to hate him because he's a man. Seward and the assistant run in and grab Agra and carry her off, and Seward tells Omar he needs to leave. So, uh, I'd imagine in your experience uh, working with... Uh, people going through various mental crises uh there are probably a lot of people who say that they're not crazy and they're somehow being victimized by uh being in the hospital that happens sometimes yeah yeah um i can't think of any specific examples um of that because uh I did. I know, like some very like deluded people who are like, well, "I probably should be in this hospital, even though I'm not really crazy." Right. But like, or people have put me in this. More common, it seems like people have put me in this hospital to um, like harm me in some way. Right. Like they're like keeping tabs on me, like kind of like a more paranoia kind of thing. Right. Right. And not so much that they're not crazy. Mm -hmm. Like they just think that they're like in a. It seems more like they think they're like being like held like as like a prisoner by like their 
myriad foes. Oh, I got you. Yeah. Uh, one lady was really concerned about finding her missing child. Mm. Um, and she was really bizarre and just manic, obviously. Right. Um, but I remember like her like one day like really being like, I need to get on the phone. I need to call this detective and see if we can find my child. And then about 30 seconds later, she's like, She's like, maybe I'll just find him tomorrow. And I was like, oh, God. Uh, okay. And I was like, all right, well, yeah, he'll probably still be missing tomorrow. <laughs> oh, boy, what a world. Uh, so we then see Omar, who returns to his hotel room but to find everything gone. And he goes to the hotel desk, and the guy at the hotel desk says that uh, the woman there checked out yesterday. So Linda has disappeared once again. We see Linda walking about, and she opens this green door, and it's Mamet. Yeah. He grabs her and puts her to sleep by cuffing her mouth. <laughs> yeah, he's just got um, chloroform. He's just got chloroform, like, in his hand. Oh, Like, okay. on his palm. <laughs> yeah. He just smeared it on there, like... <laughs> will, for, will for Linda, will for Mamet. Right. <laughs> um... We then cut from there to Nadine doing her mannequin dance thing from the opening of the film. Um, it's the same routine with some minor variations, and we get to see a little bit more of the dressing of the mannequin. We cut from there to Seward, who is writing about vampires and saying it out loud. He says that he can barely resist crossing over into the world of the supernatural. Uh, at this point, the assistant walks in and says he's leaving and says that Agra is calmer now. After his assistant leaves, he starts to creep around the place and walks upstairs. But as he's going up the stairs, he turns around and sees Nadine, who's appeared out of nowhere. Yes. He asks who she is, and uh, she doesn't answer. But then he says that he's been waiting for her. He says that only she can help him join their world. She says that he wants to take Linda from her, so she won't help him. She says this is the time of his death. Uh, he starts doing some Latin chanting, and uh, she recoils at it, but she calls out to Morpho, who runs up behind him and chokes him to death. Yeah, he very slowly tries to escape and then gets choked. Yeah. It's great. I love it. Uh, so then we see Agra writhing around in bed again. This time she's naked. Um, she turns towards the door and Nadine fades into the frame. She extends her arms out at her side and approaches Agra's bed. Agra just watches in silence before sitting up. Nadine says that she's there to say goodbye. She must leave her for another. Then Nadine vanishes and Agra is alone crying. We then see Dr. Steiner from the beginning. Uh, he was the therapist that Linda was talking to, but yeah. he was gone from the film for like 70 minutes. Yeah. Um, we didn't mention when he first came up, but when he's she, they're talking, he's just doodling the whole time instead of taking any kind of notes. Yeah, he's very dismissive of everything she says. Yeah, it's surprising that he came back to help out in whatever capacity. Right. He's reading about Dr. Seward's death, and then Omar approaches him, asking if he heard about it, and he had. Steiner says that the charlatan who believed in vampires was murdered. 
He asks why Omar cares, and Omar explains that Linda's missing. He worries that she's in the hands of the killers, and says that there was another murder uh, where a dancer bit her partner's neck. Um, and he says that he knows where the dancer lives, on a house on Yuskalen. Mm-hmm. Which I guess is in the uh, I think it's the Turkish island. area, is that the Turkish. That they're yeah. on, okay. Yeah, it's the whatever island or coastal area that the countess lives at. Okay. Uh, we cut from there to Linda, who is tied up, and uh, Mamet is now menacing her with a saw. Yes. <laughs> uh, this scene is wild. Yeah. Uh, he says that she's beautiful when she's scared. But she'll be even more so when she's dead. <laughs> he says that he's been looking for someone since his wife left, and it's revealed that his wife was Agra, yes. who went crazy after meeting the woman on the island. Um, he talks about how women love to profess their love to him as they're dying, um, and says that Linda's death will be sweet, and that in death she will kiss him. Uh, he starts to untire, saying he wants her to feel the pain freely. Uh, he keeps calling for her blood, and then he starts to pull off her stocking and, like, starts to really fetishize her leg. And then he starts to threaten her with the saw again. Yeah. Um, it's just, like, the kind of saw, like, your dad would have, just, like, an old, like, toothy yeah a, a band saw yeah it's not like fancy or anything it looks pretty rusty right it is uh <laughs> not something you want on you uh he then uh says that he can introduce her to the last woman and he gets up and he opens like a, a closet or uh something and reveals uh the woman from earlier who yes. was bleeding from her head uh she's still there not really decayed at all she's bleeding from her head uh, he says, in agony, they all love me. Linda tells him that she agrees to play his game by his rules, but he must untie her. She says it'll be nice for them both. So he starts to untie her, but she grabs the saw from him and just brings it down on him. We don't see it on screen, but I guess he just like she just gets his neck with it. Yeah, it doesn't... I don't know if it's jamming a bandsaw into someone. I feel like you'd have to do it a lot to yeah. kill them. Probably. I don't think those teeth are going to, like, even if you, like, drove it into someone's, like, skull, I don't think it would hit the brain. Right. Very uh, messy, violent death for Mehmet that we don't get to see. Right. But, yeah, as soon as she brings the saw down on him, we hear a scream and then an immediate cut to Steiner and Omar, who are approaching Nadine's house now, um, going up the stairs that uh, Linda went up earlier. Yeah. As they're going in, Morpho starts shooting at them, and then he and Nadine sprint and leave in a car together. Then we see Nadine on a boat, and uh, we get some shots of the scorpion that we've been seeing in a pool this time. Yes. And then we see Linda running along the beach side. She runs into Nadine's beach house and starts banging on the doors. Um, she's calling for Nadine, and she opens a sliding door to get in. We see Nadine, and she's uh, lying very still on that bed in there. We see then a cutaway to the scorpion underwater, and we see it just kind of roll over dead. No. Nadine 
says that she's weak and says that it's the end for her. Linda asks if she can help, and Nadine says only through her blood can she save her. Linda says she doesn't want to belong to her. Nadine looks up, seemingly surprised at what she said. So Nadine once again says that this is the end, and then Linda bites her. Nadine's eyes get super wide, and then her arm goes limp on the side of the bed. We see Morpho walking outside, and and we see Agra writhing around more. Linda says she doesn't want to be like her, so she has to do it. Uh, so she grabs a spike and seemingly jams it into Nadine's head. Again, mm. we don't see it. Yeah. Agra and Morpho immediately react and cut away shots. Morpho then rushes in and pushes Linda away from Nadine. Uh, we get to see a good shot of Nadine's corpse with uh, a lot of blood coming out of her eye. Yeah. Morpho reaches uh, in and pulls the spike out of Nadine's head. Uh, in a zoom out, we see her bo- her body and her bloody eye socket. Uh, then we don't really get a good shot. It's like a reflection on a distorted, like metallic surface. But I think mm-hmm. Morpho stabs himself with the spike. Okay, that sounds about right. Uh, and then we see Omar and Steiner, uh, Dr. Steiner, show up. They see the dead scorpion in the pool outside before anything else. Then they rush into the house and find Linda. Nadine and Morpho seem to have disappeared completely. Yes. Uh, Linda's crouched on the floor, and she keeps repeating that she doesn't understand. And then we hear Dr. Steiner tell her it was only a dream. But she says it wasn't a dream, as unexplainable as it was. She explains that the pain would fade over time, but the memory would remain forever. Then we cut away to some shots of the kite floating up in the air. And then uh, Finn. Finn. Yeah, the classic Franco ending. And uh, that is the end of Vampiros Lesbos. Excellent. All right, we're going to take another quick break, and then we'll be back to wrap up and talk about Vampiros Lesbos. on the raincoat report to talk more about vampiros lesbos so before we get into actual reviews i wanted to talk a little bit more about kind of some connections with this film and um this is one of the more famous jess franco films i think you mentioned earlier that Mm -hmm. it's you know if you've seen one jess franco film there's a decent chance it's this uh there are, there are some others that, that might uh, have gotten more attention at certain times. I feel like I hear about Venus and Furs a whole lot. Yeah. Um, but this is definitely one of those. Um, 
this is part of a real cycle of lesbian vampire films that started probably in the mid-60s and ran, I mean, in some ways runs through today, but mm-hmm. had a real uh, big explosion in the early 70s especially. Yeah. Um, you know, we have we have things like this. Mm-hmm. We have... Uh, uh, some of the Hammer films. Some of the Hammer films earlier on especially, uh, yeah. The G- uh, Gene Rollins films. Yeah, basically all of Jean Rollins... Jean uh, like his whole filmography is basically lesbian vampire films, right? Um, we've got uh, stuff like Daughters of Darkness mm-hmm. and uh, Jose Larraz's Vampires with a Y. Just a whole lot of these types of films are going on at this time. Um, you can definitely see Jess Franco's fascination with Dracula here. Um, of course, we took the Doctor Seward name. Um, but there's yeah. also a lot of other connections to yeah. Dracula. Like Agra is just a, a Renfield type. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. She's uh, abandoned by Nadine in the same way that Renfield is used and kind of left behind by Dracula. Yeah. And, you know, just kind of writhing around and tortured by the mental uh, impact of yeah. being used by the vampire. Yeah, and the Seward character kind of becomes like... Uh, Kind of Van Helsing in this one, yes, as well. Yes. So, uh, yeah, it's kind of like uh, his own uh, Franconian spin on it. Uh, yes, we have Linda visiting the islands uh, on an insurance situation. Oh, yeah, which that's... is very Jonathan Harker. Yeah, um, with the Dracula story right. as well. Um, there's a lot of that here, and you can tell that, you know, with the Count Dracula film that Jess did, he didn't quite get to do all of the Dracula stuff he wanted with it. Um, and you can see him exploring those ideas here, and it's something that he would continue to explore in other films as well. But we have a lot of those connections here. We also have a lot of connections just with Jess Franco's overall filmography. The ideas here of uh, somebody being called out uh, somewhere by a, a voice, uh, kind of telepathically chanting their name, is something that we saw in Shining Sex as well. Um, but it's also something that we see in things like Nightmares Come at Night, which Soledad Miranda was also in, even though her role was more minor there. Mm-hmm. Um, we would see it in later works like... Uh, Night has a thousand desires. There's a, a whole thing there. Another thing we see in Night has a thousand desires is uh, the nightclub sequence, okay. which is something that we see uh, from, I believe it was Lena Romay's character in that. Mm-hmm. But also we see her character in uh, Night of Open Sex doing that. We see it in Shining Sex as well. Yes. Uh, we see it in stuff like um, during his German run with Erwin uh, C. Dietrich. There's a film called Downtown, which is kind of a crime drama that uh, Jess Franco actually stars in. And uh, Lena Romay is kind of the, uh, the bad girl character in that film. But she uh, does like cabaret acts there. Um, there's just a lot of that in Jess's films. Uh, 
and keeping with tradition we get separate shots of the performer and the audience so you can tell for sure that they were filmed in two different locations but you know when you look at jess's filmography you see a lot of these threads these things that get either exploited in a short period of time over and over again or just woven into the fabric of his work in a way where you see films with similar plot lines show up five and ten years apart Mm -hmm. or you just see like these thematic strands that just show up randomly in different films sometimes in completely different genres right um that all kind of make up that weird franconian as you say dna yeah um so this is a very good example of that and um I would say that Shining Sex is kind of pure, unadulterated Jess Franco with all of the stops pulled out. Yeah. Um, I would say that this is similar to that in some ways, but I think that this is just the period of time where Jess Franco's really getting into his stride. Yeah. Um, He's thrown away the shackles of both the censorship that he was getting in Spain and the... uh, I guess less sensory, but still somewhat conservative uh, producers he was working with in uh, the UK. Mm -hmm. And uh, here he's kind of unchained to do whatever he wants for the most part. And uh, we're starting to see all of his signature things show up. And uh, it's pretty good for that. Yeah, it is. Um, I'm sure a lot of these different aspects have appeared in his earlier films, but I think that when we're looking at the films of this time period, this might be one of his more fully realized uh, expressions of all of this weird stuff that he is doing and continues to do over the years. Uh, This is one of his earliest, complete, cohesive sort of films. Right. Um but yeah, right. I just wanted to kind of give that little background. But Jeremy, uh, I'm going to let you go ahead and give your review of the film. Oh no. I'm taking over. Yeah, uh, this film, uh, Vampiros Lesbos, is a... I'd say my feelings on it are kind of similar to uh, how I felt about Shining Sex. Because in some ways it's a pretty similar movie. Right. Um, you just kind of swap uh aliens for vampires but there are some uh or whether this shining sex was based was more you know what i mean right yeah because time is all fluid which is kind of one of those things where i think that i think that uh was did steven thower say you had to see them all just uh to he, see, he was, said that he didn't agree with that per se okay uh, someone but, else said it yeah i can't remember who. okay well whoever said that I kind of get that with this because you just get with some of these, you get like a lot uh, of pretty similar, like plot threads and uh, stylistic choices and thematics and things like that, Mm -hmm. that uh, come together. So it is sort of just kind of seeing like a mutation of another film that he had into uh, like by the time he's doing like shining sex, uh, like you said, that's like pure Franco. So like, it's kind of getting like whittled down to like a certain point where it's just like a pure product of like his imagination and not so much like him, like, uh, finding himself at this point. 
Right. Well, like kind of like, and cause it's either that, it seems kind of obvious he's not super confident on all his ideas yet because he is borrowing a lot from Dracula. Right. Um, and things like that. Whereas whatever he was doing in Shining Sex, whatever that was, was a lot more of an original Franco kind of idea, it right. seemed like. Um, so I'll say narratively, I would say this is the stronger kind of version of that story. Right. Um, and as like in a commercial sense, really, uh, my feelings for the film, uh, in this one, I think the stylistic choices are better overall. I think the colors are more striking. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the music is amazing. Right. Well done. Uh, and say Soledad Miranda and Lena Romay are kind of on even keel as far as leading ladies. Mm-hmm. And I think uh, Soledad does a, a good job in this film. Uh, fine uh, performance from her. Where yeah. Am I, where am I going? I don't think about these reviews before I start talking about them. <laughs> that happens. Yeah. Uh Vampires, 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 vampires. Yeah. They're terrifying to me. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I don't want to, I don't want to compare this too much to uh, Shining Sex though, because they are different films, obviously. Right. Uh, with different ideas and motivations behind them. Um, I would say this is probably the superior film of the two. Okay. I enjoyed it more. Uh, I love the little side I love all the manservants in the film. <laughs> right. I think everyone needs one. Uh, yes. I think we should all have a little manservant. Uh, hopefully they'll be like a little hunchback guest Franco. <laughs> but in the worst case, you'll get like uh, Howard Vernon to be your little side guy. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I think this is kind of like you can sort of say this period of films and maybe this one in particular because... It's the one, like I said, a lot of people tend to know. Right. Um, it's a pretty good jumping off point if you want to get into Franco. Uh-huh. Uh, because you do see, like, a lot of, like, the ideas that you would kind of uh, explore and recreate and uh, polish in his further, in his later career. Uh, kind of, there's sort of the genesis is kind of here. Right. Um and so for that, I think it's pretty good. Um, it's not my favorite thing. I would give it a 3.5, which means I like Lulu's talking ass more than this. <laughs> All right. <laughs> um, that's, oh, but that's the end of my rambling review. All right. I hope you were able to follow it just like you were able to follow this film. All right. Well, uh, I agree with all of that, basically. Um you know, this is a great film. I absolutely love the soundtrack. It's one of the most successful psychedelic films of Jess's with the repeat imagery, the soundtrack, the weird uh, time and space shifting of everything, uh, dreams vampires uh all of that fun stuff i think that if you were going to watch one or a couple of jess franco's films this film should definitely be in contention for that it 
is one of the films that has a ton of Jess's trademarks in it, as we've kind of talked about. Mm-hmm. Um, so many different recurring themes in his work um, show up here. So if you were trying to get a good taste, especially of his early 70s work, this is one that would be a great kind of sampler of all of that. Mm. And again, while I don't agree with the idea that to see one of Jess's films, you have to see them all or whatever, but I think that this is a, a great entry point because it's very well made, like technically proficient. Yes. Um, even a lot of his other films that I really like, you have to kind of, you know, note that sometimes it's a bit rough around the edges. Yeah. And I mean, narratively, there's some rough around the edges things in this film. Yeah. There always will be, but that's also kind of what I like about Jess's films. Yeah, yeah. Much like Fulci's films, they're very based in dream logic. And if you sat there and just tried to take everything apart and make sense of everything, you're likely to get disappointed. But um, if you're just kind of tuned in to be along for the ride, to experience it as an experience rather than just a act of storytelling, Mm -hmm. I think that there's a lot to get out of it. But at the same time, it is narratively well done. It's not the type of film that like the narrative falls off at some point. You can certainly be critical of certain things about the narrative and how certain things maybe don't logically fall together at a certain point, or why did you cut away here and leave so much kind of just blank in the middle of the things? Yeah. But at the end of the day, it's still very full of plot. It doesn't, like, give up on the plot at some point in the film. Right. And if you give some forgiveness to the weird editing at times or just the certain pieces of the story that seem to be missing or at least not shown on screen, it is, generally speaking, fairly coherent and uh, straightforward. Of course, Soledad Miranda is great, and this is one of her great performances. Uh, Jess himself said that he liked it more than most of his films, but also doesn't think that it's a great film. Uh But he did say that it had great atmosphere and that Soledad Miranda herself was excellent in it. I would agree with both of those points. All of that being said, I've kind of been mulliganed around in my head. And yesterday I was going to give it three and a half stars, but I've been thinking about it a lot and... The first time that I saw it, I was really kind of blown away by it. Just the, especially the imagery of the film, mm-hmm. the way that things are shot, and of course the music. But as I've kind of sat with it overnight and thought about it more, I'm giving it four stars. All right, you go ahead and do that. I will. And it right. is done. Excellent. So, uh, you know what's not done is Franco February. It's not. We've got one more week. We've got one more week. Um, and uh we'll uh it's off the rails now we don't know what's coming yeah we're we're gonna figure it out you've had vampires and talking buttholes and uh aliens yeah interdimensional fog beans uh yes uh i think is a better description than alien uh yes um so who knows what's coming down the pipeline uh stick around and check it out next week next wednesday uh yes to finalize the descent into utter perversion yeah and if we're lucky maybe uh 
some some porn actor will tell us to untag them on Instagram. We're gonna start getting letters from lawyers soon. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, it was bound to happen. Yeah, oh, it's the beginning of the end of the raincoat report. <laughs> Short lived. Uh, yep. Well, it's been fun. We're going to jail now. Uh, yeah, they won't let us record podcasts in jail. I don't think. They probably would. You think? Uh, like a millionaire jail. Uh, well, we're not going to millionaire jail. Because no one will send us any money. We're going to crackhead jail. All right, well, shit. Uh, so, uh, in the meantime, though, Can't if you want to... jail. If you want to help us out, send us money uh, for bail. Uh, <laughs> Raincoatreport at gmail.com. Also, if you just uh, want to ask us questions or get in contact with us directly. Um, And also we've got social media up at Instagram and uh, Twitter Twitter, at Raincoat Report. Yes. Rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast. Tell people, let them know what's going on on our show, Uh, especially if you think they'll like it. You know, help us out. We need to spread the word of the teacher, and we need to spread the word of Jess Franco. But, uh, you know, keep a lookout for vampires. Yes. Make sure you don't get vamped. Stay safe. Protect your neck. Protect your neck and uh, don't forget your raincoat. Oh, yeah. Nein. Es war kein Traum. Auch wenn es noch so unglaubwürdig erscheinen mag. Auch wenn es keine Erklärung dafür gibt. Der Schrecken dieser Tage wird verblassen, aber die Erinnerung daran wird immer bleiben, solange ich lebe. Ah!